from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and a scientist that plums the depths of human consciousness. His writing is expository and illuminating in exploration of the unknown. He's joining me today to discuss his academic treatises on the mystery of psi phenomena. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Dean Radin. Dr. Raiden, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of January 2023. I read your book, Real Magic, when it was recommended to me by an acquaintance when I asked him what I should read for better insight into the effect that consciousness has on the operation of the universe. And when I looked up your book, I found out about the Institute of Noetic Sciences and was amazed at what was being done in the way of empirical research into psi phenomena. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Good. Glad you found the book. So to give a brief summary of your academic pedigree, you are chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and associated distinguished professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. You have a master's degree in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology. Am I missing anything? <laughs> no, that's correct. All right. So what began your trajectory into the study of psi phenomena? Uh, I think as a kid, I may have watched too many Star Trek episodes and uh, <laughs> read one too many science fiction or fairy tale stories. Gotcha. So consider today about uh, children or now even adults who have read the Harry Potter series. People are fascinated by this stuff. So I'm no different than all of the other millions of fans of science fiction and fairy tales, essentially. Mm hmm. So we've got a Ph.D. in psychology and a degree in electrical engineering. What was your first paid profession involving those areas and how did it kind of lead you into this research into parapsychology? Oh, that's a good question. OK, so my first paid job after my doctorate was at Bell Laboratories. Mm -hmm. So Bell Labs was the laboratory of AT&T which at the time was called Ma Bell because it was basically one giant telephone company. And the advantage of having such a large corporation like that is that the laboratory had 50,000 scientists and engineers who are developing what we now think of as the modern world. Mm -hmm. So everything from the transistor to practical uses of the laser, you name it, all kinds of things were developed. So the projects that I was on had nothing to do with psychic anything, was mostly developing the human interface to the network operation centers that were behind the scenes way that the telecommunications business works. Mm -hmm. One of my jobs was to study reasons why triply redundant computers would fail. And so in the telephone business at the time, and even more so today, all of the switching that happens when you call somebody, it's all handled by computers. Mm -hmm. And they really, really do not want those computers to go down because they'll lose revenue, enormous amount of revenue. There are ways of getting your phone call from here to there by redirecting it. You can place a phone call from you to your neighbor 
which might travel a thousand miles oh. and you would never know it. Wow. And what it's doing is basically self-repairing and self-redirecting all the time. But there's a huge number of computers out there doing that. And if one or more goes down, it disrupts the whole system. So the computers are made to be super reliable, but sometimes they fail. And so the question is, well, why are they failing? Well, after investigation, about 90% of the time, you can figure out why it failed, mm -hmm. even when it's triply redundant. And so what happens on the other cases? So you have 10% of the time that we don't know why it fails. Well, that's not good. Mm -hmm. So my group was studying this and it occurred to me that maybe what I had been reading, even from a teenager, I've been reading about studies of psychic phenomena and psychokinetic effects and mind-matter interaction and gremlins in the laboratory, all that sort of stuff. So I thought, well, maybe one of the reasons why these things fail is because somebody is around that simply makes the machines fail. Their intention, their anxiety is interacting with the machines. Mm. So I proposed to do an experiment to see if I could replicate what others had been reporting in the literature about mind-matter interactions, in particular mind-machine interactions that would not be explainable through any ordinary means, but something having to do specifically with the human operator's mental state. Oh. So at the time, I was working on projects that had 20 other people, and I would have time to do anything I wanted because I was typically waiting for somebody else to finish something. Mm -hmm. And rather than sitting there twiddling your thumbs, I figured, well, this would be an interesting experiment. So I had a chance to visit a couple of the laboratories in the United States that were doing psychic experiments, mind-machine interaction. And one of the folks was in San Antonio, Texas. And fortunately, he loaned to me a random number generator that he had been using. So it's a machine, it's an electronic circuit. And it was pretty simple. It basically presented a ring of lights that would light up like it was going in a clockwise circle. And then when a certain random number came along, it would reverse and start rotating in the other direction. Mm -hmm. The lights would turn on, so it looks like it was rotating. So the task of the subject in the experiment was make these lights go clockwise as long as you can. Okay. Eventually, they'll start going the other way, but then immediately use your intention to try to make it go back. And if you're able to do that and make it go clockwise more than counterclockwise, it would mean that you're able to somehow influence the randomness in the system. Mm -hmm. In that particular case, it was a Geiger counter, and the randomness was pitch blend, which is a natural ore of uranium. So it was based on what should be a quantum indeterminate randomness, which is when a radioactive particle decays. Mm -hmm. so the mind should not be able to, I mean, according to physics, it should not be able to influence that. So I used that machine. I used it on myself. I used it on my colleagues at work, and I was able to show that we were able to influence it. So... It's not 100%. You use statistics to be able to show that you're able to change the probabilities of this device. But we were. We were able to do it. So that got me more than simply interested from an academic perspective mm -hmm. that other people had reported this. Now I was able to do it too. So I got permission to present that at a conference at the Parapsychological Association because any conventional conference, they don't care about that stuff. They wouldn't <laughs> believe it anyway. Yeah. So I did that. I went to the conference. I presented it. And as far as I was concerned, it was just an experiment. But everybody else got very excited, not so much because of the experiment, but because I was from Bell Labs. Mm -hmm. Because the parapsychological community, while consisting of scholars and scientists, is usually not embedded within mainstream science. Mm -hmm. And Bell Labs definitely was. Yeah. So they got excited about that. And as a result, there were people in the audience who at the time were working on a secret project for the government, and they recruited me for that project. So that was a transition between I'm interested in this, I'm doing experiments on this, to holy smoke, this stuff is real. Mm -hmm. And not only real, but pragmatically important. So that's the short version of how I ended up doing what I do. Gotcha. And circling back to mind-machine interaction, so was the contention that a mind state like, I guess, anxiety was causing the tech issues? It partially is anxiety. It's in a broader sense, it's emotion. Mm -hmm. And even in a broader sense than that, intention. Okay. And sometimes focused awareness, not even intention at all. 
So we had noticed even at Bell Labs, and of course, this is part of laboratory lore everywhere where there's technical equipment, that there's usually one guy or one gal who is uh, a jinx. And so they'll come into the lab and things will start breaking. And so this is part of Murphy's Law. You know, there are these stories that come about when people are working in these environments with sensitive equipment, going all the way back to Wolfgang Pauli. Mm -hmm. So Wolfgang Pauli, of course, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, became known eventually for the Pauli effect. And the Pauli effect was that if he was going to go to an experimentalist's laboratory, they could tell when he was arriving because the equipment would start breaking. <laughs> and he, he was able to do this again and again. That's why they kind of named it after him as a joke, except it's not such a joke. It really does seem to happen. Mm -hmm. And this was true even at Bell Labs. We had a guy who was in charge of a very important project, and we'd have a visiting dignitary, like a vice president of the company or some political person come to see a demonstration of this important thing. And of that guy, whose name was Jim, if he was present during the demonstration, you'd get to the point where you press a button and something's supposed to happen and nothing would happen. <laughs> it's as though it was completely dead. And we had tested it 30 minutes before and everything was working fine. But when he was there, it did not work. So we created our own superstition that Jim cannot be president <laughs> because he had so much anxiety and so much running, uh -huh. so much involvement in the project since he was the leader that we said, well, well, we don't care if it's superstition or not, but you're not going to be present the next time we do a demonstration <laughs> because it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And we were right. Okay. Well, tell me about the genesis and the mission of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. We were founded in... 1973, so 50 years ago, mm -hmm. by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the lunar module pilot who landed on the moon and, of course, walked around on the moon. On the way back to the Earth, Edgar had a mystical experience, and that was sparked by looking out of the window of the capsule, and the capsule was spinning so that it wouldn't heat up too much on one side. And so what he would see again and again was he would see the Earth, a bright blue ball in space. Mm. He would see the stars that are way more brilliant than we can see on Earth. And then he would see the moon or the sun revolving again and again. And he had a few minutes to be able to look out of the window because his primary job was landing on the moon and they were already heading back to the Earth. So the way he described it was in looking out at the Earth about the size of a marble, he was simply contemplating the fact that everything that we know all of our history, everyone we've ever met, all of our conflicts, all of our great inventions took place on that little ball, which has been around for billions of years. Mm -hmm. But humans, only a couple hundred thousand years, we think. Mm -hmm. Well, something about that idea in space created, among other things, an enormous amount of compassion because there's a total amount of suffering that's always happening on earth, not just with humans, with any kind of living creature. There's huge amounts of suffering. Mm. So he's feeling compassionate about that. And then it sparked somehow into a feeling of unity with all life on earth, which expanded to all life in the solar system, the galaxy, and eventually the universe. And so this wasn't an abstract idea. It was a palpable feeling of unity with the universe. Mm. It's accompanied by waves of bliss which is what classic mystical experience is all about. Mm -hmm. You feel unity with everything and kind of a bliss that goes along with it. So this is not the sort of thing you'd expect an astronaut and an MIT scientist to have. <laughs> and he was so shocked by the experience that when he came back to the Earth, he was determined to find out, first of all, what was that? Was it a cosmic ray somehow making his brain go burp? Or what was it? So we discovered very quickly that this is a very classic mystical kind of experience. It can be sparked in certain circumstances, and it creates a transformative experience. Like you're no longer the same person after you have that experience. The world is perceived differently. So being a technological guy, he decided to use the best tools and techniques of science to study what is that. What does that tell us about the nature of consciousness and our role in the physical world? That was the origin of our institute. So very early on, most of the research was funding others who were engaged in one way or another with looking at psychic phenomena. After a few years, that expanded into giving grants to people who were looking at things like 
what is the role of gratefulness or compassion in healing? What is the role of the mind and the body in healing? Things like that, more practical aspects. So much of the research that we know today about meditation, about mind-body interactions and so on, most of that actually started as little seed projects that we gave from our institute. And then starting about 20 years ago, we formed our own internal laboratory. And that's where I joined the Institute. I was brought in as the person who would run the laboratory. Oh, okay. So we started doing our own research in-house, most of which has been revolving around psychic phenomena, around different kinds of experiences suggestive of survival of bodily death and that sort of thing. Okay. So basically that's your job as chief scientist is you oversee the operation of the internal laboratory? Yes. I'm not the director of research. There's somebody else who is the manager in part that is in charge of all of the various people and the projects and everything else. Okay. My role as chief scientist at this point is more like an honorific. Mm. Like I was the first person to start at the lab and I've been there the longest and all that, but I'm not directing what others do. Okay. Uh, we all participate in everyone else's projects. There are five senior scientists and a couple of other people. And so we do multidisciplinary studies because each of us brings different disciplines to bear on whatever the project happens to be. Okay. Well, you've written a number of interesting books. In your book, prior to Real Magic, entitled Supernormal, the title of the book is referring to a term you use when describing psi phenomena. So can you tell us why you specifically use the term supernormal instead of supernatural when referring to psi phenomena? Well, supernatural implies something that is not natural, mm -hmm. is beyond nature. And psi phenomena clearly are natural and part of nature because it's very widely reported by people. Mm -hmm. So it's a natural ability. It's not very well understood. But because it is part of the natural world, which after all is the only thing that science can study, we can't study worlds that are proposed through religion. Mm -hmm. We can't even study what mystics report in terms of the reality of what they report. Like, you know, we don't have instruments that can measure unity of everyone. So we study the natural world. We happen to be studying unusual experiences, or actually I take that back. The experiences are common. They feel unusual because they don't fit very well within our scientific worldview today. Mm -hmm. But psychic experiences are remarkably common. And one of the ways we know that is we've done surveys where if you ask people, have you ever had a telepathic experience or did you ever have a precognitive dream and so on, you get certain responses that show that, yeah, somewhere between a large minority and sometimes a majority will say yes. If you cast the question in a slightly different way and you say, did you ever have the feeling that somebody was staring at you and you turned around and they were staring at you? Or did you ever have the feeling that the phone rang and somehow instantly knew who was calling? These are all psychic effects but they're not using those terms. Mm -hmm. And so many, many more people, 90% of people will say, yeah, they once had that thing happen where the phone rang and they knew who it was, or somehow somebody they hadn't talked to in 20 years came to mind and then they checked their email and there's an email from them. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are somewhere between coincidence and actual psychic effects, but they're very, very common. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's open to these kinds of things, they might even talk about it. But most people don't. Mm. They don't talk to others about it because they're concerned that other people will think they're going crazy or something. Supernatural is a notion that comes out of religious traditions. Mm -hmm. So and almost every religious tradition starts with somebody who has a mystical experience. They describe their experience. Other people buy into it, essentially. Then it becomes a social movement very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so once a religion begins with dogma and social control and all the other aspects of the religion, most of them accept that psychic effects will happen. And many, not all, but many will then prohibit people who as part of that religion from paying any attention to it. Mm. So as an example, in Catholicism, the ceremony of the Eucharist is a very explicitly a magical act. It's transmutation of one thing into another, but only priests are allowed to do that. And the catechism in Catholicism is very clear that you should have nothing to do with any form of magic. 
And so if you kind of step back from that and look at it from a sociology point of view, it's a matter of maintaining control. Mm-hmm. Like these people can control these magical things, which we all completely believe in, but only certain people are allowed to do it. Anybody else is not allowed. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of constraints come in to place in most religions. But from a religious point of view, people, of course, they believe in the phenomena because it's all about supernatural acts. In that case, pointing to divinity, mm-hmm. right? It's pointing to God or something like that as the source of these magical things. So from a different perspective, or like a shamanistic perspective, there may or may not be God or gods out there, but this is now a human quality. It's a quality that all of us have, and it has to do with the nature of consciousness and not being imposed upon you or miraculously appearing somehow that has nothing to do with us. Mm. Well, in the East, it seems to be more commonly accepted in your book, Supernormal, you showcase studies that show the incredible psi-abilities of advanced yoga practitioners when they reach a state of transcendence through meditation called samadhi. Right. And when I say yoga, I don't mean stretchy pants and heated rooms. So right. can you uh, tell us a little bit about what yoga is and what it is not? Well, if you take the original idea of yoga, which comes out of the Yoga Sutras, that was first written by Patanjali, one of the Indian sages, roughly 2,000 years ago. And of course, whenever you're dealing with a book that comes out of 2,000 years ago and written in another language, it's not entirely clear who actually wrote it, or even if we know who Patanjali was, but this is the best as we understand today from a historical perspective. So you have this little book made out of four pieces in the book. It was originally written in Sanskrit, one of the four sections of the book is explicitly about the cities, the special powers that arise as a result of yoga practice, by which was meant meditation. So the physical side of what we see today is the stretchy pants, that was a relatively minor aspect of yoga, mm-hmm. at least from a classical and ancient perspective. The only reason that people would do special stretching and exercises was to become strong enough so they could sit comfortably for 10 or 12 hours a day while meditating. Mm -hmm. So today it's reversed kind of. You want your body to be strong for obvious reasons and flexible because it's healthy. And if you're really lucky in some yoga classes, they'll do a meditation Mm -hmm. at the end for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe. So it's a little bit of a reversal from the way that yoga was originally conceived. And the end goal of Yoga was basically to gain a mystical practice or a spiritual practice, we might say, that would end up in something like what they would call liberation. Mm -hmm. It would be a transformative experience that would reveal to you who you really are as compared to the illusions of separation that keep us separate from each other. Mm -hmm. So in that transformative experience, as I said with Edgar Mitchell, you feel that you're a one with everything and everyone throughout space and time. Mm-hmm. Well, that changes how somebody views themselves in the rest of reality. And in that state, among other things, the notion of compassion is no longer, I mean, it's not an abstract for most people, but we feel compassion for others. In that state, you feel compassion for everything mm-hmm. because you are everything. Mm-hmm. And so that's the transformation. And again, not abstract, but felt as this is absolutely real. Mm-hmm. And we see that even today for initial therapies on people who are dying, taking psilocybin to see if it would resolve the fear of death, for example, that when they had the psilocybin experience and they were in the right set and setting, they would report afterwards that it was the most profound experience they've ever had in their life. Mm -hmm. That one experience completely changes their notion of who and what they think they are. Okay. So 2,000 years ago, maybe they weren't using psilocybin, but they had a way to get there. And actually, Patanjali even says in his book that these powers that arise as a result of achieving the state of samadhi, one way to do it is through meditation. Another way is through certain kinds of drugs. Mm -hmm. So they knew about psychedelic drugs. Another way is simply through talent, which means you're born with this particular genetic background. And another way is that you gain grace from something. You gain a gift. So... Back then, they knew that there were multiple ways of getting to the same place, but the goal was the same. It was to 
get the transformative experience that would reveal to you the nature of reality. It's the naked reality, the one that doesn't have all the filters that we mm-hmm. pile on top of our perceptions. Okay. Well, circling back a little bit to the Yoga Sutras, like you mentioned, there's some question as to who and when they were actually written. One of the articles I read said the second century BCE, mm-hmm. but uh, regardless, you know, quite a while ago. So, do you think there was some evolutionary reason for these abilities to evolve? No, I think that what we see with psychic and mystical experience is a reflection of the interconnectedness of the universe, of reality. Mm-hmm. So this is portraying a picture of reality which is holistic. Mm-hmm. There's no separation in reality. We, by virtue of our perception, our cognition, our ideas, we carve it up into pieces. Okay. I mean, after all, the word science is really, if you look back at the Latin root, it's about cutting. It's about knowing and cutting. Mm-hmm. So how do you know something? You cut it up into bits and you learn something about what it is based on the bits. Well, that works really well for certain mechanical and physical things. It doesn't work so well for understanding life. Mm-hmm. You start cutting up a person, you'll understand the anatomy, but not how does this all work together? Mm-hmm. So science is extremely good at some things. It is not so good in studying other things. Okay. So it really comes down to what is your worldview like? And so a worldview that might be closer to the nature of reality itself is the esoteric worldview, which includes yoga. Okay. The scientific worldview is only looking at a little piece of reality. Okay. Well, one extremely interesting use of the RNGs or the random number generators that you mentioned earlier is the Global Consciousness Project. And from what I see, I mean, the website still operates. I'm assuming it's still going on. Is that correct? Yes. We now call it it's GCP 1.0. Okay. It has been running since 1998. It's still running. The total number of generators on it at the moment is roughly about 20. At its peak, it was 70. But we're pretty far downstream now on creating GCP 2.0. Okay. So GCP 2.0 will have at least a thousand random generators scattered around the world. And each one of the generators has four generators inside of it. Mm. So we actually will have 4,000 random streams of data, whereas previously at the peak, we had 70. Mm. So even with 70, we're able to, after running the experiment for some 15 years or so, we tested 500 major world events to see if there was something about collective consciousness when it went into these unusual states where there was enormous amount of coherence caused by a single event that captured the world's attention, usually through the media, which might have been very positive, like the opening ceremony of the Olympics or maybe the Academy Awards, where you can predict that there are tens of millions or more paying attention to the same thing at the same time, or negative events like when the media is saturated with some terrorist activity or shooter event or something like that. So the idea was, again, this is now challenging the notion of who and what we think we are in our relationship to the physical world. So materialism is mainstream science today, but it's just one philosophy. The esoteric worldview is a different philosophy. It's a worldview that says consciousness is primary over the physical world. Well, there are many intermediary philosophies, one of which is called dual aspect monism. So that means that everything arises out of one holistic unity. Carl Jung called it the unus mundus, the one world. That's almost exactly the same as what you find in alchemy. There's one world. Mm -hmm. But out of that one world emerges two different aspects of it, and hence dual aspect monism. It's the one world which gives rise to two things, one of which is mind-like and the other is matter-like. And so we experience the mind and matter, you, know, you have the internal thoughts, which are mind, and you have the external world, which is matter. And dual aspect monism is saying that they're both real. They're both arising out of something that we really don't have a good name for other than unus mundus. Mm-hmm. But they're both real things. But they're also very tightly correlated with each other. So the metaphor is that reality is like a coin, and mind and matter are like the faces of the coin. Mm. So you have heads and tails of a coin. They're different, but they're tightly correlated by virtue of being part of one thing. 
be unus mandas. So if that were true, then one way of testing if that kind of idea has any validity to it is to say, well, if you have unusual periods of time when you have tens of millions of people all in alignment in a mental space, would that cause, because of this tight correlation, would it cause something like a tight alignment or coherence in the physical world? And so one way to test that is you put the random generators around the world and you see whether they become less random or more ordered or more coherent around the time when people are mentally coherent. So that's essentially what the experiment did for 500 big events, Mm -hmm. which captured lots of attention. And the overall result was a 7.3 sigma deviation from chance. So that is equivalent to odds against chance of 3 trillion to 1 to see as much order appearing in the randomness during those events. And so pretty good evidence that something unusual happened during events and something continues to be unusual happening when people are going into a state which we can call coherence. Mm -hmm. We know this in the laboratory that even one person will have an effect on a random number generator. In this case, we're looking at what happens when tens of millions of people are not intending, but simply attending to something. The attention alone seems to create this effect. So is that kind of analogous to the way the observer effect would react on something? Maybe. Yeah, it might be related to something like a quantum observer effect. We don't know for sure. Uh We do know that quantum mechanics allows for some kinds of interactions to occur. Many physicists would say it has nothing to do with mental observation. They would claim it has to do with measurement, which doesn't need mental observation. I don't agree with that. Because you can make a measurement, but if nobody ever knows the result of it, is it still a measurement? And this is related to the idea that if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, in one sense, it makes a ripple in air, but that doesn't make a sound if we define sound as somebody hearing something or something hearing and subjectively experiencing it. Yeah. So from that perspective, then you can say, well, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? The answer is no unless there's somebody around to hear it. Yeah, I've gotten incredibly interested in Hinduism. The concept that you were talking about, the unus mundus, was that what it was? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of similar to the Hindu concept of Brahman? All is Brahman? Yes. Okay. Yeah, every esoteric tradition has a different name for this, but it is a holistic something from which emerges the world as we perceive it and experience it. Well, the main ingredient needed to achieve samadhi and supernormal abilities, they're not really the intention of samadhi. They're more of like a byproduct. Is that correct? Well, it depends. In some traditions, it's used as a yardstick to say you've achieved a certain level of ability to do samadhi, except that within the Yoga Sutras, the cities are given almost as a prescription. Mm. Like you achieve samadhi, which in the magical lore, we'd say gnosis, the same thing at the very deep level of awareness. And then you put a very small intentional spin on it. In that state, you have a tiny little desire, essentially a spin. And that gives rise to a power which is related to the intention. Mm-hmm. So in the yoga traditions, then, if you wanted to perceive through space and time, which we would call clairvoyance, you go into samadhi and you put your attention on the future or on the past or on simply expanding your awareness through space and time. And then from that emerges this particular power or ability. Okay. And you mentioned that two of the things listed were meditation and talent. So meditation, obviously, if you're cultivating focus through meditation, more than likely you're going to reap those spiritual benefits of learning not to identify so much with the self and attachment. But if you have talent, like you're just naturally born with this ability, would that make somebody prone or at least able to use psi abilities for nefarious purposes? Yeah, I think certainly there is talent here in that some people can learn to meditate very quickly. 
and they get very deep in meditation quickly. Others can struggle and struggle and struggle. They don't have a natural talent or affinity to do mm. meditation. So once somebody is talented and is able to get into those states, or maybe they're just naturally psychic, they don't meditate at all. That's possible too. I view this as a power, essentially. It is a, a thing you can do that is not just inside yourself, but it can influence the world as well. Mm. So as we know, you can use nuclear power as weapons, or you can use it to generate electricity. A power is neutral mm. in terms of its essence, how we use it then gains moral and ethical concepts. Okay. Like we could use it for good, we could use it for bad. I think the same thing is going on with these kinds of abilities. Because the abilities are not arising out of nothing. They're arising out of some aspect of reality that we don't understand very well. And once they arise, it's up to the person using them as to how they're going to use them. Okay. Well, with regard to life after death, the Institute has done some experiments with mediums that purport to be able to communicate with the dead. And prior to working with these individuals, you had them vetted by the Winbridge Research Center, which studies death, dying in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And the aim was to weed out people that used methods like cold reading to appear to be communicating with the dead. So the intention of the study was to determine if there was a unique brain state experienced by the mediums when they were purported to have been communicating with the dead that was different from normal brain states involved in like recollection and other states that would indicate deception. And the study did in fact determine that there was a significantly different brain state. So what implications would you say that result has for the existence of life after death? Do you think it's confirmatory or is it still kind of? It's not clear. And by the way, the other brain states were not a matter of confabulation or trying to fake it. Mm -hmm. It was simply that if you read a story about communicating with the dead or you simply imagine that you could communicate with the dead as compared to doing mediumship, mm -hmm. whatever that meant for each medium, that the brain states are different. So you can put a spin on top of that where you want to look at the implications of what does it mean. That different brain state only tells us that whatever the person is doing when they're doing mediumship is not the same as when they're imagining that they're doing mediumship mm -hmm. or reading a story or several other states. So in one sense, this is not too surprising because there are all kinds of specialized mental states that you can get into. For example, if we had a musician who was reading a score as compared to thinking about playing music, as compared to actually playing music, there too, you would expect to find different brain states. So a brain state is a very crude way of telling us that whatever's going on in the person's mind is being reflected by the activity of billions of neurons okay. working in concert. It doesn't tell us anything about whether or not the medium is actually communicating with the dead. Okay. And you had mentioned Silas Sybin earlier. The scientist Rick Strassman suspected that the drug DMT, when people were on a DMT trip, was kind of the equivalent of samadhi, or at least a similar transcendent state. His contention was DMT may increase the permeability of the membrane that separates us from different worlds. What are your thoughts on that possibility versus the possibility that instead of different worlds, DMT may actually be allowing us to see our own world purely unfiltered by our brains? Well, and it's not clear that those are different, hmm. right? If you see naked reality that's not being filtered, there are all kinds of possibilities that can arise. Maybe we live in a multidimensional space, which are inhabited by a semi-infinite number of other creatures mm -hmm. that normally we don't pay attention to. We can't perceive it all. You can add on speculation after speculation about what it all means. Mystics will tell you, but if you have a thousand mystics, they'll give you some degree of concordance in terms of what they're describing in their experience. But they will also then eventually say, well, this is really ineffable. Mm -hmm. We can't really describe exactly what was going on because our language is predicated on the everyday world. It's a consensus agreement about what this particular word means. And if everybody had a mystical experience, we'd probably be much farther along 
because we have words mm -hmm. to describe what that is. So you look in something like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and other books like that, where you have traditions that have done introspection or meditation for centuries, they have developed words for the different states between life and death and different meditative states and so on. We don't have that. Like in English, we don't have those words. We, we, can, we can sort of point around those words, but we can't really get at it because we don't have enough consensus agreement about what we're even talking about. Mm -hmm. So among people who may be Sanskrit scholars, they will point out that, and I'm not sure whether this is true or not, but like the Eskimos have 40 words for snow <laughs> because the, the, that's their environment. They know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And maybe the ancients had 40 words for different levels of consciousness or 300 words. I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised. We gain a consensus opinion about we will call this this word, and then people will know the jargon and be able to talk about it. But at least in modern English, especially with a scientific spin on it, we don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So somebody has a transformative experience and tries to explain it, and after a while they give up and just say, well, it was there. It's a thing, <laughs> which is not very useful. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on the view of panpsychism when it comes to sort of a theory of the hard problem of consciousness? Panpsychism is interesting because it's quasi-materialistic. Mm -hmm. It's as though we completely bought into, as most scientists do, we buy into the philosophy of materialism because, among other things, many scientists are not taught about philosophy. Mm -hmm. they, they don't read about, some even don't think it's necessary to even know about that science sits upon a whole bunch of assumptions, yeah. which is philosophy. I mean, even some famous spokespeople for science completely dismiss philosophy as though we don't need it. Mm. Those philosophers have been discussing these things for 3,000 years, and they never made a transistor, something like that. And if you do look at the philosophy of science, and also the history and the sociology of it, you begin to see much more clearly that materialism as a doctrine, as a way of understanding reality, is very, very good at certain things. It is not good at other things. And this, of course, is where the notion of the hard problem came from. You can trace everything from a physics perspective, from biting into a lemon, all the way down to what's happening in the neurochemicals in your tongue and in the neurons and all that. And that will tell you absolutely nothing about what it feels like or what it tastes like internally when you bite into a lemon. Mm -hmm. So that's the hard problem. How do we repair this missing element where we have subjective experience that doesn't seem to be accounted for by a purely materialistic explanation of the world. So panpsychism is a kind of an easy fix where you simply say, well, every piece of matter is sentient to some degree. Everything physical has some sort of internal state, which in us we experience as subjective awareness, but even an electron has something like an internal awareness. Mm -hmm. That's an easy fix because now it's still materialism. It works perfectly well. Everything you've already learned would work the same, except you've added a new quality mm -hmm. to matter. So I understand where that comes from. It may even be correct. We don't know yet at this point. I kind of suspect that it's more complicated than that. So there's panpsychism, there's pan-cosmopsychism, which says it's not only that bits of matter have this element, but the universe itself has awareness wrapped into the fabric of reality. And so one way of thinking of it is that simply consciousness, awareness, it simply permeates everything. It's just there. It's not even particularized yet. It's just a background that's there. And so anything that happens to arise, like if you go down to the zero point level of the vacuum, that things popping out of the vacuum will, by virtue of being part of the cosmos, will have a certain degree of awareness mm -hmm. to them whatever's popping out of the vacuum. So then, yeah, it solves materialism and it solves the hard problem pretty quickly. But I view cosmopsychism as the universe is made up of a very complicated tapestry. The tapestry is made out of threads. Some of the threads are matter and some of the threads are mind. Hmm. You need both in order to create this tapestry. Okay. So that's one way of thinking of this as a metaphor that there's a weaving and a woofing going on to create the fabric of reality itself, and it has to be composed of the two parts, mm -hmm. exactly the same way that a tapestry would. 
But of course, it's way more complicated than simply a simple piece of fabric because it has so many different elements to it. Mm. All right. Well, when it comes to parapsychology in general and the studies that you do, because you're kind of, in a way, using consciousness to study consciousness, are there any special methods or controls that you have to utilize that you wouldn't under normal circumstances? Well, you're raising the problem of the epistemology of consciousness studying itself. Mm -hmm. And it is a major problem in the field. So we sometimes use the term experiment or effect. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a psi experiment, which is already assuming that separation is an illusion, and it's not very easy to constrain or isolate the investigator from the topic of investigation, we actually don't know what to do about that from an epistemological perspective. We know it's a problem. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, that in parapsychology, but also in biology, that some people are far more effective in getting results in experiments than other people are. Mm -hmm. We see this even in practical medicine. Some doctors have an incredible bedside manner and others don't. Mm -hmm. And so some of this you can describe as they are interacting with people differently, how you can interact or have tacit elements of dealing with biological samples that make a difference. At a more subtle psychological way, you can say that simply the way that you interact with another person will influence their openness to a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so as kind of an example here that in parapsychology, we have this effect called the sheep-goat effect. Mm -hmm. So the sheep are people who believe in ESP and the goats are the ones who don't believe. And if you take a classroom and you separate them according to sheep and goats, and they all take exactly the same experiment, this kind of a study has been going on for like 70 years. And the overall results are very clear that the a priori belief of the people doing the experiment will give you results that split in that direction. So the sheep will tend to get positive results and the goats will either get no results or negative results. So another twist on this experiment is you get a classroom of students and some of them read a paragraph that is very supportive of parapsychological studies. And the others get a paragraph which is extremely skeptical about it. Mm. And so now you've created sheep and goats. <laughs> like whatever, you don't know, even know, it doesn't even matter what they were before. You've <laughs> created a momentary sheep and goats. Mm. You do the experiment and you get the results you would expect. Mm. The people who just read a paragraph seeing the praises of this kind of results will get much better results than people who just read a paragraph by skeptics who say it's all nonsense. So our openness and belief very strongly modulates not only your personal experience, but objective results and experiments as well. So now you cast that into a higher stance of how do we deal with this? Because experimenters have different ideas. Replication is extremely important in science. You get a whole bunch of skeptics trying to replicate these effects. They're very likely going to convey that skepticism to their participants. And it's not surprising then that they're not going to get anything very interesting. Mm -hmm. Or the flip side, you can get exactly the opposite result. So one way of trying to account for that is when you ask each investigator beforehand, what is your a priori belief? How open are you to these effects? And those studies sometimes work and sometimes they don't work. So there is an effect there. I've seen it in myself and my colleagues. We all know about it. We all are concerned about it. And we don't know exactly what to do about it, other than the example I just gave, where you try to assess beforehand what people think or what do they believe about. Or belief is not quite the right word. It's more like, are you open to a result that would be positive? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like you go to a movie and you don't sit there and be skeptical throughout a movie because that doesn't make it much fun. Mm -hmm. So you suspend your disbelief. Well, in a sense, a really good experimenter will suspend their disbelief. Mm -hmm. They'll also suspend their belief if they can, which is not easy. But you try to approach it in as neutral way as you can, which is much more difficult than it sounds. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, like why bother doing an experiment in the first place unless you're open to having something interesting happen? Uh, yeah. Well, this next question I'm hesitant to ask because if you tell me, you may have to kill me. But <laughs> in 1978, the government 
took an interest in psi phenomena, particularly remote viewing, to see if it could be used to gather intelligence. Now, if I remember correctly, were you involved in the Stargate project? Yes. Okay. And it was 1972. 1972, excuse me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, people in our government had heard rumors that the Soviet Union at the time, or maybe the Chinese at the time, were doing experiments involving psychic phenomena. And so as soon as you hear that a potential enemy is doing something involving something that might be a threat, mm -hmm. well, then government apparatus gets seriously concerned and projects are created to say, well, is this a threat or not? So a large component of that program, initially at least, was to assess whether or not any of that stuff is believable. Like, is there a threat or not? You see the same thing happening today with UFOs. So we know now the government has been watching about UFOs for a long time because of the threat. Mm -hmm. And there is a threat. I mean, a very mundane threat, not necessarily that ETs are about to pounce on us, but there are things in the sky that might interfere with not only commercial aircraft, but military aircraft, and also credible stories that whatever is up there in the sky is interfering with our nuclear weapons. Well, that's a threat. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that there have been programs, secret programs for a long time, tracking to try to figure out what's going on here. In the case of the UFO business, I think it's probably fair to say that there is a threat. We don't know what it is. Maybe there are ETs, maybe not. It sort of doesn't matter in terms of the evaluation of what do we do about it because we don't know what to do about it. By contrast, when it comes to something like psychic phenomena, we first determined pretty early on that, yeah, the Russians were involved in it. We're still not sure about the Chinese, but probably, probably other governments as well, because these phenomena are real. There are some people who are very talented, and it can be used in practical ways for espionage mm -hmm. to do things that we can't otherwise learn. So our spy satellites are really, really good, but they can't see inside a building very well. And worse, they really can't see inside people, mm -hmm. meaning they can't figure out intentions and they can't contact people in the way that you could with human intelligence and in particular with things like psychic intelligence. So because there's a pragmatic aspect to it, much of the research then evolved into how do we make these abilities better, more reliable? How do we find people who are really good at it? Can we train people to be good at it? All those kinds of questions, all of which are very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. So most of what I was involved in was the research side, which was asking those questions and trying to figure out how to make it better or identify people. But then on the Army side, which was doing the operational missions, they didn't really care so much about these kinds of questions. They were tasked almost on a daily basis to help some agency somewhere figure out how to do their mission better. Mm -hmm. So most of what was going on there is declassified now. So if somebody wants to get the inside story from the people who were there, there's a bunch of books out there that are good. But there's a four-volume series called The Stargate Archives, okay. which was written by Ed May and his colleague. And Ed May was the director of the program for quite a long time. So he, in some cases, got things declassified. And in other cases, simply collected a lot of the materials that were developed, paper materials, and published it. So there, you know, you can just go buy those volumes and read all about it. Mm -hmm. Some aspects are still classified, some of which I've known things that happened and I had to check with people in the know, is, is that thing still classified? <laughs> and they come back a week later and say, oh, yeah, that's still classified. So, <laughs> But please don't tell me, I don't want to die. <laughs> no, I, I can't. I, I mean, if it's really classified, I I can't talk about it. Yeah, I'm just ever, joking. Until it's declassified. <laughs> and Ingo Swan was involved with that, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah, I was there when Ingo was there. He was a funny guy, besides being a really exceptional psychic and was able to develop a training method for remote viewing, which now that we even coming up with the notion of remote viewing as a euphemism for clairvoyance, mm -hmm. that was part of it too, that you know, even in a classified environment, you don't want to spook people. So you don't say we're teaching people clairvoyance, we're teaching people remote viewing. Well, why? You know, what is that? Well, it's like remote sensing. Mm -hmm. So satellites do remote sensing, mm -hmm. right? That's the technical term. So this is like remote sensing. It's to reduce the charge of the spookiness by using a euphemism. And that's, of course, the military and government in general is very famous for doing that. <laughs> 
for all kinds of things, mm. right? We can't say UFO anymore. We have to say UAP. What does that stand for? I can't even remember. Uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. Oh, okay. That's the uh, the sugar coat. All right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, but it's a it's a new euphemism, so it sounds technical. And now we're modern and sophisticated, and we don't believe in all that nonsense <laughs> because we're not even sure that they fly. Right. If you have a stationary object that's just sitting there hovering, uh-huh. apparently, is that flying? Well, maybe. There's no exhaust. There's no indication of anything like an engine. Mm. So maybe it's not flying. It's simply an aerial phenomenon. Oh, okay. and, and actually, you see this historically as well for psychic effects, that new words are selected that have become more and more neutral. So within the Stargate program, the phrase anomalous phenomena was used fairly often in particular, anomalous cognition, Mm. which is a pretty neutral way of describing what's going on. Somehow something gets in your head. Mm. We don't know how it gets in your head. Okay, it's anomalous cognition. Mm. And so rather than (laughs) than saying we're looking at psychokinetic effects, it's anomalous perturbation. Oh, God. (laughs) And because perturbation comes out of physics as, you know, how do things interact with other things and usually in a small way. Okay, we're dealing with small things that appear to have something to do with the mind. Let's, okay, we're going to call it anomalous perturbation. Mm, It's a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in your book, Real Magic, you gave an anecdote of intense synchronicity when it came to searching for new office space. Yeah. Has anything with that level of synchronicity happened since the writing of that book? No, not as remarkable as that. Because there wasn't a single synchronicity. There were like three or four things in a row, each one of which was very unlikely, but the combination of all of them was crazy unlikely. Yeah. Well, out of all the psi in your research, which one have you found the most profound evidence for? Well, I would say the presentiment effect. And presentiment refers to a pre-feeling effect, an unconscious precognitive phenomenon. So the way that this, all of these effects, by the way, they manifest in the real world in various ways. So you come up with names and experiments to be able to test it. So an example then, a mundane example of a presentiment is riding along the street to go to work and you've got that way a thousand times and you know you come to a red light at some point and today you get there and it looks green and you're going to accelerate so you want to get through it. But something inside you is telling you there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. You don't know what it is. Or you don't see any other cars doing funny business, but you get slower and slower. And as you approach the green light, you're going really slow. And just as you get into the intersection, a car, which was hidden by a truck, mm-hmm. you couldn't see that car. It just zooms through their red light and would have hit you broadside and caused a major accident if you had not slowed down. So you realize that you were paying attention to something like your heart rate or some anxiety was arising and you didn't know why. Mm -hmm. So that is a pre-feeling event. You didn't know it. It wasn't precognition. It was a pre-feeling. So that's where presentiment comes from. So that is pretty common. Okay. The actual case that gave me the reason for starting the experiment, this particular experiment, was a guy I knew who liked to go hunting with his buddies and they brought rifles and pistols. One of his pistols was a six-shot dual-action revolver. So in a revolver, the cylinder revolves, and then the hammer hits the next bullet, and it shoots. So dual-action means you pull the trigger, the hammer goes back, and the cylinder turns at the same time. So you can keep pulling the trigger again and again, and you don't have to do anything else because the whole process is automatic, Mm. the hammer, the turning, and so on. So he would keep five bullets in a six-shot revolver. For safety, he would keep the hammer over the empty Mm -hmm. chamber in case it got jostled or something. And so he took everything apart. He's cleaning it. He puts it back together. He's about to put the fifth bullet back in, and he gets a really bad feeling about it. Mm. So he doesn't. He leaves it aside. And otherwise, he leaves the pistol the way he normally would. So the hammer is on the sixth empty chamber, and he forgets about it. So two weeks later, he's out hunting with a bunch of his friends, and they come back to the hunting lodge, and they start drinking. And there's a whole bunch of loaded guns around, which is not a good thing. (laughs) And so two of his friends get into an argument. One of them picks up his gun, Mm -hmm. which hadn't been used yet. It's the same gun that he had cleaned. Picks up the gun, points it directly in the face of this other guy he's angry with. And to his horror, he sees that he's pulling the trigger. 
Jeez. The hammer is going back, the cylinder is revolving, and so he tries to intervene by stepping in the way. So what happens is the triggers pull all the way back and the hammer goes click uh-huh. into the fifth chamber that would have held the bullet that would have shot him right in the face. Oh, and so at wow. that moment, he had this moment of horror, realizing that if he didn't have that bad feeling about that fifth bullet, he'd be dead. Mm-hmm. So the challenge then is, let's assume that that's something like a two-week-long premonition of something about that bullet. Mm-hmm. So how do you look at that in the laboratory, or even in the more mundane case, where you're putting somebody in potential danger and they're avoiding it? And so I came up with this design which I described in my books, of a way of testing that. It's not going to put anybody at danger. And it works. And it works really well. So I first did it in 1996, I think. And as of now, there's like four dozen replications by other laboratories. And not only do we overall see that this is a real effect, but more importantly, that when you look at similar experiments, because I use an experimental design that's used in psychophysiology in general, you look at the data in those experiments And those experiments are designed to look at what happens after you see either a calm or emotional picture. There are thousands of such studies published. If you look at those studies and look at what happened before a randomly selected calm or emotional picture arose, you see the presentiment effect. Mm -hmm. The same thing that I saw in designing it explicitly to see what is happening in physiology before something happens. You see it even in experiments that were designed for other purposes. So, It strongly suggests that these kinds of abilities, in this case, a presentiment, is a kind of a psychic ability that is always working. It's always there. And this is almost certainly true for all of the other phenomena. It's always there. It's in the background. And most of the time, we don't pay attention to it until we have to. Mm. Well, what do you think is the most significant thing that the work at the Institute and the study of psi phenomena in general has for the mental health and just overall well-being of the entire population? Well, it, I think, is reminding us what mystics keep telling us, which is that separation is an illusion. Mm-hmm. And one of the consequences of that is that we often find it a little bit too easy to avoid other people's suffering. Mm-hmm. for perfectly ordinary reasons. I mean, it's reasonable. Otherwise, you get into compassion fatigue. if You spend too much time with that. Mm-hmm. But it's useful to be reminded that we probably are all interconnected in some way. Our feelings of compassion for others is partially because we are the others. So I think of this phrase from the Indian sage Ramana Maharshi. So he gave a lecture about something. Somebody comes up to him afterwards and say, similar to what you were asking, how do we treat other people? And his response was, there are no other people. (laughs) So that's the reminder of having compassion for everything, Mm -hmm. for you, for other creatures, for the planet, for everybody else, to maintain that as a state. Mm -hmm. So it's, as I said, it can be difficult to maintain that because if you walk in a city and there are a bunch of homeless people, you want to help them because you're compassionate, but it becomes overwhelming after a while. You can't. So what else can you do? Well, you can do it mentally. Mm-hmm. So what we find in our studies is that your mental state will infect other people. So if you walk around angry all the time, you're radiating anger. It's going to affect other people unconsciously, whether they know it or not. The flip side is also true. So one of the great cities that you read about in Patanjali's work can be translated as radiating goodness. Mm-hmm. So occasionally I will meet somebody. I met the Dalai Lama one time. It is a good example of that. They're these people who are sort of suspiciously happy all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're radiating goodness in their presence. You feel different. At least I feel different. Mm-hmm. Is you suddenly feel happy. Yeah, they light up the room. Yeah, there's something changes there. Whereas the flip side is also true. So there's something about this separation being an illusion which is quite real. In many ways, that's exactly what we see in our experiments. It's that we're not really that separate from other people and other things. And it's useful to keep that in mind. Uh, It's not always pragmatically possible to maintain those rarefied states of being happy and compassionate, but being reminded of it again and again, that seems to be a way of helping everyone. 
Well, Dr. Radin, it has been beyond fascinating talking with you. Thank you. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Well, if they want to read about the astonishing synchronicity that we had briefly mentioned and mm -hmm. look at my book, Real Magic, part of the subtitle of Real Magic is The Secret Power of the Universe, mm -hmm. to which occasionally somebody will write to me and say, I didn't see the secret power. Where do you talk about the secret power of the universe? And it's true. I never say anything in the book about the secret power of the universe, but I thought it was obvious <laughs> that the secret power of the universe is consciousness. Uh -huh. That's what it's all about. It's what is it, what can it do, what are its properties, all of that stuff. That's the secret. And there is no secret. All right, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Dr. Raiden, thank you again for joining me. My pleasure. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.